The series, my friends, that we are in right now is called Basic. So it is a look at the central and like basic theological tenets of our faith. Joe has already talked about God, humanity, grace, and Jesus. Still upcoming will be Holy Spirit, sacraments, and eternal life. Today, though, the topic is kingdom, specifically, of course, the kingdom of God. Now, last Sunday was also Pentecost Sunday, and that's when the global church celebrates the moment when the Holy Spirit first descended upon the early church. The Spirit, of course, is our helper, our comforter, our advocate, our transformer, our refiner, and the source of our maturing and our flourishing. Joe will be teaching on the Spirit soon, as I mentioned, so I won't get into details any further on that theology, but it's relevant today because it is through the Spirit of God that we have an understanding of the shape of God's kingdom. We can know God because we have the Spirit, and that relationship with the Lord produces in us the fruits of the Spirit, as the Apostle Paul describes in his letter to the Galatians. And I have it here on a slide for us. You don't have to search for it. So in this chunk that I've got up here, it's Galatians 5, 19 through 23, Paul first describes the deeds of the flesh in order to give his reader a juxtaposition. So I'm going to read the whole chunk for us. Now, he says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I just want to pause really fast to point out, like, envy and selfish ambition are on this list. Like, anyway, it's not in my notes, but I just... Some of those hit hard, right? Jealousy, selfish ambition. Anyway, just saying, they're on the list. <laughs> Not the ones that get pointed out in a lot of media and stuff, but whew, equally, equally icky. Okay, carrying on. <laughs> but, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things... There is no law. Just reading that list like, made me feel lighter. So Paul is saying here, the kingdom of God is something we can inherit. That's interesting. And the ruling voice, which shapes our character, right, out of which will come our behavior, this plays a role in determining what we inherit. And we see described here that the fruit of the spirit are what make God's kingdom distinctly different from the kingdoms of humankind. It's the evidence, we could say, of God's kingdom being present or at work. Fruit of the Spirit. And so I have to admit, saying the word kingdom over and over and over again feels a little like that thing where when you say a word, it kind of starts to lose meaning, you know? So like, what do we really mean when we use this word kingdom to describe God's presence at work? And I think this is also another instance when we are using human words to try to define and make sense of our great God, just as Joe mentioned in his sermon on God a few weeks ago. And it can be a little tricky uh, we know, when we're trying to make sense of our intangible God, 
But what we are trying to communicate here, I think, is that we believe that God is the supreme ruler of all that we see. We're using our human terminology to say that God, this God that is truly beyond our understanding, is our king. Not only ours, right, but king of all creation, of the entire universe. And that matters because the king sets the tone for their domain. I mean, think about it with me. What do we know about the kingdoms of humankind? Historically, what are those oriented towards? What have been their driving ideologies, their collective culture and character? And we don't have to go very far back into history necessarily because we have kingdoms in our world now, right? And we recently witnessed the coronation of a new king of England. Well, United Kingdom, an empire, right? But what are these human kingdoms known for? And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I really mean it. So you can just shout it out. <laughs> Louder? I didn't hear you. Oh, no, maybe not that one. OK. <laughs> Greed. <laughs> Having servants? Sure. I mean, and even maybe forcing people to be servants? I don't know, that's what I think of, too, right? What else? Jewels and treasures. Jewels and treasures? Accumulating wealth? Sure, that goes along with greed. Any other thoughts? Yes, colonial. <laughs> colonial empire. <laughs> Colonizing the whole world, sure, right? And that's building your dominion. plunder, building your dominion, absolutely, right? So not, not the fruits of jesters. <laughs> Not the fruits of the spirit, though, right? Nobody said joy. <laughs> Nobody said gentleness. Our human kingdoms are not built upon patience, you know? So even though the model we have for kingdoms is mostly a negative one and also not really relevant to our country or our culture, I think that we continue to use the word kingdom when we speak about God and God's role and influence because we still have this sense of how things ought to be. We still have this sense of the intended order of things, of the way God set it all up and the way it is supposed to be. And I think that that's why we still choose to use that word. We know that God is supposed to be king of all things, but we also know that what was initially set up became broken by sin. And you know, theologians speak of God's kingdom using the phrase, now and not yet. The now and not yet kingdom. And this means that God's kingdom is present right now, right? That's our reality. God's kingdom is with us and present right now. But it also recognizes that God's kingdom is not yet fully here. We believe that one day the Lord will renew both heaven and earth and that all will be made right. But that's the not yet part. So for now, we live in a broken world marred by sin and ruled by selfish, greedy kings. God's presence is available, of course, but not yet permeating. Like think of floodwaters, not yet permeating the world. And we live with the knowledge of the not yet, the renewed world where God is fully king over all creation, a world where justice is prioritized. Everyone is welcome and cared for, and the fruits of the spirit are flourishing. That's God's kingdom. And you know, speaking of kingdoms, I, was just in a kingdom, the magic kingdom. <laughs> My 
my kids and I were just out in California for two weeks <laughs> visiting my family. Um, and because I'm a California girl to my core, and my kids are all at the perfect age to actually appreciate it, we spent the money and we went to Disneyland. So all my life, I went twice a year at least, and it was really just as much fun as I remember it being. Um, but this time it was maybe even more fun because I got to experience it through their eyes. They'd never really been, you know? Um, so everything was just like this wonderful, fresh experience. I have a photo of my cuties and me in front of the Sleeping Beauty castle, and I'm gonna get my water while you look at that. <laughs> my giant jug of water. <laughs> my cute little kiddos. Uh, anyway, well, oh, that's noisy. Sorry, everybody, I don't have a better bottle. So, you know, uh, it's not an accident that this castle became the instantly recognizable, like, icon for the entire company. Walt's intention when he first built this castle at Disneyland was that it would be visible as a point of orientation no matter where one might be within the park but also that it would act as the beacon drawing people away from the front entrance, down Main Street, and deeper into that world he was creating. So I have another picture for us that I grabbed as we were walking in, another look. We're looking from Main Street towards the castle, and I know it's hard to see. I took this, like I said, down Main Street, but you can kind of see the castle rising up there in the distance, all lovely and enchanting, maybe if you squint. <laughs> But we have all of our shops down Main Street, and the crowds are all headed in that direction. As you can see, no one's bothering with everything on either side. They're headed straight for the castle, right, as it calls them further into that world of fantasy. And I think that this idea of Walt's castle is an interesting kind of jumping off point as we continue to consider God's kingdom. So remember, he wanted the castle to be a point of orientation as well as a beacon. So without torturing the metaphor too much, <laughs> I'd like to invite us to consider what could be the beacon drawing us deeper into God's kingdom. And turning to our scripture this morning, I'd like to start with Psalm 149. It's a psalm of the kingdom. And I forgot to grab a Bible for myself, but I want to give you a chance to go ahead and grab that. And while you're doing that, I'm going to tell you a thing. All the psalms <laughs> were written to be sung so these psalms that you are turning to find are Israel's songbook. And we see here a song that heralds God as king and gives shape to God's kingdom for us. The psalmist starts out in a way that draws us in, like Walt's castle, drawing us into imagine a world where justice is saturated with the praise of God. And Psalm 149 is also part of a small grouping of psalms called the Hallelujah Psalms, the final five psalms. They offer praises to God, moving out in concentric circles, so to speak. So first from the individual, and then all the way out to all, with God's kingdom described here in Psalm 149 that I'm going to get now. <laughs> oh, you're a real gem. Thanks, friend. Thanks, Dan. Okay, everybody, so in your pew Bible, Dan has discovered that it's page 982, and we're reading together from the NIV, again, is our pew Bible, and I clearly did not put it in my notes because I was like, you'll grab a Bible, you won't forget. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> 
Here we go, reading together if you want to read along with me or I will read for all of us. So we have Psalm 149. It starts off with, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. Praise the Lord. That's a lot, right? <laughs> so theologian J.A. Mottier, in his commentary, describes how the Psalter, which is what we call all the Psalms taken together, the Psalter, it begins in Psalm 1, verse 1, with blessed is the man... And then the Psalter ends with these five psalms that are a five-fold equivalent of blessed be the Lord. In these final psalms, there is not any reference to personal need or petition. Right? Think about that. We didn't read that in there at all just now. All is focused on God. All is praise. And there is a progression of that praise, as I mentioned, during these last five psalms, from beginning with the individual praise in 146, moving to communal praise in 147, then creation praise in 148, kingdom praise is here in 149, and then finally 150 directs all to praise. So Matyar says the sequence of these final five psalms has therefore brought the world into submission, and the anthem of the redeemed is about to begin. The psalmist is calling each little piece to join the whole, right, and praising Almighty God. And you know, when we read these poems and when we sing our songs, the way we just did together this morning, we are rehearsing God's deeds in history and God's grand narrative. There's a wonderful song about the kingdom of God this morning. So remembering that the Psalter is the book of worship songs for the Israelite people, we are also singing through our theology every time we gather. And so too have the people of God for all of time. The Hallelujah Psalms in particular bring our focus back to the Lord piece by piece, where the world pulls us apart, fracturing our focus and discouraging us from remembering God. The psalmists are reminding us that all we know comes from God's hands and God's kingdom includes all things, individuals, communities, creation, all. But let's unpack the psalm a little bit itself. So you may want to keep it open in front of you for reference. I don't have slides for all this. Um, so it is thought that the psalm comes from the post-exilic period in Israel's history. It wouldn't be a sermon from me, I think, without history stuff, so sorry about that. But so the post-exilic period in Israel's history is when they think this was written. So that means that this is during that time after Israel was exiled to Babylon. So they have been permitted to return home, but during that time when they had been brought to Babylon as captives, they had ceased to exist as a physical nation and became instead a people group without a land of their own. So these words that we have here then are the words of the oppressed. 
They're the words of the conquered, the ones who had been displaced and downtrodden, victims of an invading empire, right, of an invading kingdom. These are the words of a people who were rebuilding their national identity. They're working toward their collective betterment and reestablishing what it means for them to be the people of God in their own land. The beginning of verse 1 and the end of verse 9, you may have noticed, are sort of creating bookends for the psalm. In Hebrew poetry, it's called a parallelism. Parallelism, there you go. While the rest of verse 1 through verse 4 follows a predictable hymnal pattern of calling people to the praise of God, verse 5 through the first part of verse 9 contain a shift and a surprise, right? You may have been surprised reading it just now. There's unexpected talk of vengeance and chaining kings and nobles. So there are, there are sort of two sections, we could say, right, to this psalm. We've got our first section of the praise and the second section talking of the vengeance and God's justice. And it all is sort of hung around verse 4, which is where the motivation for both sections is found. God delights in God's people and brings salvation. Um, in this NIV, it does use the word salvation. In a different NIV that I had, which is making me question my NIV, but in a different NIV, it said that God crowns the humble with victory, right? But the word in Hebrew is actually the word for salvation. So among all the different translations I read, though, my favorite was in the Common English Bible where it says, God will beautify the poor with saving help. I love that. God will beautify the poor with saving help. And I want to also offer a couple of thoughts on verse 5 um, and the mention of beds, since that's like a weird thing to encounter in a praise song, you know? So theologians and their thoughts vary on this, but one compelling idea is that this is supposed to be a reflection, actually, of earlier lamenting. So remember, this is post-exile. And so we have Jeremiah and Lamentations in our Old Testaments, where there's a lot of sadness and lamenting over the destruction that happened in Israel being carried away into exile. So the biblical language for lament will often find one lamenting on their bed, as humans do, right? We go to bed at night after a terrible day and we just cry ourselves to sleep. We lament on our beds often. So one interpretation of this is that God here is redeeming the sadness and the despair of God's people. If we read it again, verse 5. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. God is redeeming their despair, bringing saving help to God's people, God's victory, and so the people will delight in the glory of the Lord instead of lamenting. Another idea that I like is that the praise and rejoicing described in the first section will simply be so grand and so overflowing that it will continue throughout the day, well into the night, when one would typically be upon their bed. <laughs> I'm just so joyful that I just carry on into praising. So no matter which interpretation we choose, the psalmist's point stands. God is our salvation and very worthy of praise. Secondly, it's important to note that the vengeance described here in verses 7 through 9 is still God's, even though the people are called to be the ones achieving God's pre-written justice. And let's not let it escape us. The people of God are to have God's praise in their mouth while they are doing God's work. The requisite for doing the work appears to be having a relationship with the Lord such that one is drawn to joyous, noisy, musical praise. 
And of course, the work that is described here may be a little strange to our ears, wielding a sword, chaining kings and nobles. But again, if we remember the time in which the psalmist thought to have been written, then it makes sense that the psalmist would speak of this reversal as justice. Israel was chained and led away captive, and God's kingdom justice will see the world's oppressors and unjust kings brought low. I wanted to share with you also what one of the commentators I read mentioned about this psalm. She said that since we in this era might have a hard time connecting with the weaponry language, or again, the talk of chaining kings and nobles, she suggested that it might make more sense if we think about our weapons as our words. So sit with that for a minute. The psalmist here says that because of God's delight in us and God's promise of salvation, that God's people will enact God's decrees and achieving God's justice will be an honor for God's people. So people of God, what are we doing with our words? Are we using our voices, our privilege, to enact the justice that God has described? Is the praise of God in our mouths while our hands are doing God's kingdom work? So the psalmist is using this opportunity to herald God as king and remind the people of God through the songs they sing that their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this God is the one true king over all. And the people of God are called upon to join in the work of the now and not yet kingdom of God. And Psalm 149 helps us to understand life in God's future kingdom as well, where praise will ever be on our lips and God's promise of a just kingdom will be realized. And you know, Jesus also talks a lot about God's kingdom. There are stories in Matthew 13 in which Jesus teaches that while the kingdom of God is good, evil will exist in the same space. The same field has both good seed growing and weeds, for example. And the same net pulls in both good fish and bad fish. Jesus also describes people who are searching for great treasures as those who are searching for the kingdom of God. They understand that it is something to be sought after. And once they find it, they do whatever they can to hold on to it. And Jesus also tells us that the parable of the, or with the parable of the mustard seed, that there is enough kingdom to provide for all. The kingdom is broad enough to shelter all. All can find safety in God's kingdom. Jesus further tells us, this is all from Matthew 13, Jesus further tells us that this is not like the kingdoms of the world, the kingdoms of humans, and so not everyone will recognize it when they see it. And this is all really important because the way we approach our world matters. God's kingdom, the psalmist says, is a kingdom of justice. And as people of Christ, we are part of God's kingdom. Jesus teaches that the world we are living in now will be a mix of evil and good, and also that we are not the ones responsible to differentiate. Judgment is never our job. And the word tells us that even though the troubles we see now can feel insurmountable, right, as though this confounding blend of evil and good cannot be changed, God's preordained justice has been written in, and the way of justice is in living like Jesus did. 
So let us not grow weary of doing good, but instead heed the calling to kingdom work with joy, recognizing the fruit of the Spirit and the Lord's presence in daily interactions with our community. So moments when mercy is extended between friends, the kingdom of God is there. Or when the oppressed become liberators, the kingdom of God is there. Or perhaps in just the pure generosity of a stranger. Right? Those are moments where the kingdom of God is right there in our reality among us. That's the daily evidence of that now and not yet kingdom present in our midst. And you know, to call back to uh, dear old Walt's castle, I think that our beacon is Jesus. Jesus is the one who calls us deeper into relationship with God, while the Spirit is reorienting our hearts and ensuring that our alignment is correct. And the icon for us is not a castle, but the cross of Christ. King Jesus took the human notion of kingdom and entirely flipped it when he went to the cross. Earthly kings built castles on the backs of their constituents and built their empires through conquering and oppression. Their castles kept them isolated away from the world and from their people. Our God willingly waded into our mess, forsaking glory to submit to death. The beacon of God's kingdom is Jesus, and our icon is the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Merciful and magnificent sovereign God, thank you for this scripture that we have held in our hands. May our hearts continue to be tuned to yours, seeking mercy and justice. May we behave in loving ways towards all that we encounter. You are the center of all that we know, and we welcome your presence in our lives, dear spirit, as we desire to be more like Jesus each day. Amen.